you can connect one part to another so things don't feel like an isolated skill or an isolated technique or practice, but you start to see the integrated dimensions of what we're doing here on Earth. Welcome to Design Makes Everything Better, a podcast about design as a process for making decisions and succeeding. Today on episode number six, part one, Vince interviews Christine Macy, architect, historian, and former dean of architecture at Dalhousie University. And now here's your host, Vince. Hello, welcome again to Design Makes Everything Better. Today, I have the fortune of introducing to you Christine Macy. She was a professor of mine while I studied at Dalhousie University. At that time, she was also the dean of the school. And as a design office where we hire a great number of architectural graduates, she has been the mentor of uh, many students that have uh, come through our office, currently even one in her office right now. A lot of people who may be listening to this podcast that actually don't study in architecture currently or haven't in the past, uh, you get a little bit of insight into the variety of topics that architectural students and graduates and even the profession cover and the things that we think about on a, on a somewhat regular basis. We cover landscapes, our identity with land, where it came from and where we are moving towards. We also talk about the identity that we have of cities, ideas of monument and ideas of installation and festivals and how they all go towards making the cities that we identify in different ways. The blind spots of the profession. Um, what can we do to be better as a profession in design and in architecture? We can't be isolating ourselves and we have to be more inclusive of different ways of thinking. It's a great conversation. She's fantastic. We actually had to break it into two parts because she's so whip smart. She has so much to say. We really couldn't take out anything. So um, after you listen to the first part, there is a second part that is going to be dropped about a week from now. I hope you uh, enjoy this episode and continue to check in. Thanks. So Christine, thank you so much for joining us today. It was funny, I was looking through some of the notes that I've been putting together for the podcast and I couldn't help but do a calculation that it, it was actually... 21 years ago when I had my first class with you, which is, it blows my mind. <laughs> 21 years ago, time flies and you look great. You are one of those lucky ones that do not age. Like you look the exact same as you did when I was your student. Wow. You do. <laughs> it's I was crazy. pretty overaged then. So when I was your student, you were the Dean of Architecture and Planning at Dalhousie University. And also at that time, you were the author of Architecture and Nature. You co-authored that with um, Sarah Balmaison, which you, I remember you introduced it to the school and I remember it was, was an exciting bit of work and I'd like to hear more about that today. You're widely published and your current research activities, and I, I apologize, I have to read this because I, I, and I want you to expand on this because I don't know if I okay. get it really 100%. Your research work is focused on the cultural dimensions of Nova Scotian food producing landscapes. Oh, my is current that, work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's So could you, could you expand on that first and tell us what that is specifically referring to? That's been <laughs> a really fun project. As you said, uh, our book Architecture and Nature, which came out in 2003, looked at the cultural dimensions of landscapes in the U.S. And in 
that book really talks about the way landscape and ideas of landscape have been used as a trope for constructing national identity in the U.S. And this is really relevant to Canada as well, because the U.S. and Canada are colonial countries. So people who've immigrated here, originally as settlers and as colonists, developed their sense of identity as people who were leaving European state and arriving in this new world, Mm -hmm. which was inhabited, of course, but seemed to offer these new arrivals all kinds of uh, opportunities. Lots of land you could farm, seas teeming with fish, forests that could be cut down for trees, which didn't exist anymore in Europe. And in the U.S., this idea of um, the new world as a kind of uh, infinite terrain to be husbanded or farmed or sustained mm-hmm. or despoiled, right, <laughs> eradicated, right. Taken exploited, of. was a big part of the early American identity around the frontier. And so my book back then talked about how ideas of landscape were reconfigured over the course of 100 years in the U.S., from the frontier to the idea of the national park and preserving the frontier, the notion of the frontier, at the same time you're expelling indigenous people from the, the national parks so that you could preserve that sort of essence of the frontier as a people-forming dynamic, you know, teach young men to be out in the wilderness, teach people to be, you know, self-sustaining. And then in the 1930s, Roosevelt declared the new frontier is cooperation and the whole importance of the cooperative movement and trying to integrate technology, nature, and landscape. And the best example of that is the dams in in Tennessee Valley Authority. And in the post-war period, ideas about landscape were really about enclosing the landscape in the single-family home. And Ralph Rapson's Greenbelt House is a great example of that. But there's many examples of those mid-century modern homes that have bits of landscape inside. And the idea of the domestic unit is sort of like a little Eden. And then with the rise with the Apollo Apollo space program in the U.S. and the first time people saw the Earth from outside, from outer space, that notion of nature being something that has to be sustained in the birth of the ecology movement. And so that book talked about those kinds of movements of landscape. And that was now almost 20 years ago, over 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, that book was published. And um, now I really wanted to turn to look at the landscape here where I've been living for the past 30 years. And it feels like home, Nova Scotia. And I'm an Yeah, you're American originally, yeah, right? Originally. From California? I'm from California. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, I've lived here 30 years, so that's a, that's a pretty good chunk of time. And yeah. I'm an immigrant. You're like still so from others. away on Nova Scotian standards. Well, and so are all the Nova Scotians, yeah, unless, right. you're, unless you're an <laughs> indigenous yeah. person. So wanting to look at this landscape, I was really interested in the way the different successive waves of people who've come here have worked with this landscape, encountered this landscape, tried to understand it. And also tried to live off of it. And so each time they bring their their way of farming, their way of building, their way of eating, they say, gosh, I can't cook the same way I cooked back in England or France right, or wherever else. I have to adjust it. Mm -hmm. And so I I thought of calling this a kind of culinary landscape. And so this book looks at the central district of Nova Scotia, the district where everything grows. The Mi- the you mean Mi'kmaq. like the valley? When, what do you mean by well, the Well, the Mi'kmaq district? called it, um, I don't know if I can say this correctly, but Sipanikitik. I would not be able to correct you if that's right or wrong. I think the, the way it's been anglicized or Frenchified is Shubanakiti. Okay, yeah. And I know that, a lot of radio announcers of, pronounce yeah. it correctly, but I pronouncing it the way it's spelled sounds like Sipanikitik, but it might be, I'm sure it's quite different than that. Anyways, that means the land where the wild potato grows. And the wild potato is a kind of 
small root that's indigenous, that's quite prevalent around historic Mi'kmaq settlements. And it was harvested. And it also, that central district of Mi'kmaq, it's one of several districts in Mi'kmaq, it encompasses Halifax Basin, St. Margaret's Bay, crosses over the northern, the eastern part of the Annapolis Valley, South Mountain and North Mountain, up through the Minas Basin into Truro and over to the Northumberland Strait. So it's the whole central farming district. And pretty much there, you can get anything you need. Hunting, farming, fishing, herding, all of that. It's basically the most fertile area. And it happens to be the area that coincides pretty much with L'Acadie, Acadia, or what we now call, you know, the Annapolis Valley, Minas Basin, Truro, all those areas that are the farming heart. So I thought, what better way to look at food culture in Nova Scotia than to look at this district and how people have understood that landscape and how they've tried to create their resource, source their food from it. Right. So it's entirely a historical perspective. Well, I'm also look at contemporary. Well, I look at this historical pattern of settlement and the kinds of foods that are made. And then the challenges with the way the colonial mentality has overtaxed and overtaxed the land as a resource and also been sort of completely ignorant of or um, blind to the needs of sustainability on that landscape. So they've overfished, they've overforested, they've overfarmed, they've overdone all those things, overmined. And so then I look at the kinds of challenges that we're facing today and then what steps are being taken, who's leading the way for a more sustainable way of farming in the future. Yeah, and today it's it's very much a an issue on the forefront given the premier's incentives and attempts to reduce the amount of clear-cutting and increase the biodiversity. And uh, I think it was Bill 4 that was, you know, now it's being edited because there has been a significant amount of pushback from private landowners that feel there is an unfair request by the province to restrict the way of which you can use the land that you own, right? Yeah, well, that comes from the English tradition. So one of the things I look at is the notion of land tenure. So the British and the French both brought in a particular idea of land, which wasn't that it's a shared resource, which wasn't that it has an ecosystem of its own. It's that you own the land and you can do anything you want with it. It's called freehold tenure, and you can exploit it. Of course, the crown reserves mineral rights underneath, and those can be leased to you. But that's a very different approach. It's odd that that is um, something that would have come over from Europe. There is such a limited amount of space available. If there is a sort of cross-pollinating that happened from the European settlers to Nova Scotia and how you use land, it seems like it kind of morphed into something that's a little bit more of a, like a drug addict. You know, you, you had a little bit of something and now it's just so prevalent. Like there's so much land here. There was no limit. You could just take and take and take that's and take exactly and take. Right. What you're talking about is a sense of ownership that landowners have in Nova Scotia over their lands that doesn't extend to any sort of community responsibility or social responsibility. It's, it's a really interesting subject matter because this has to change, right? So how, how can we change that? Or is that part of the, your thesis or your, your research trying to see how we can evolve that understanding of land so that we can protect it to a degree? I think we have to. I mean, the Europeans hit their limit in terms of their land carrying capacity quite a while ago. Like they deforested Europe several times over. Mm-hmm. They've run into 
major problems with sort of sustainability of all different kinds of agricultural practices. And because they haven't gotten more land except through the colonies, um, and also because their economic and cultural development happened prior to the Industrial Revolution, their time of great urbanization and densification is starting up around the Industrial Revolution. But all those practices were earlier, and even though there were some very traumatic moments like the Enclosure Acts, which lasted for several hundred years, a lot of those older patterns have persisted. North American colonial settlement happened in parallel with the Industrial Revolution. So right from the beginning, well, very soon after settlement here, you had the power of the motor, the engine, fossil fuels, which really extends the reach of exploitation in all kinds of levels. And because both Canada and the U.S., their huge development is really in the 19th century, in the 20th century, became very integrated markets over vast areas. That really, Europe has no parallel to that. So that's why we are shipping now beef to Ontario to be slaughtered and shipping it back again. Just like Nike shoes get shipped all around the world for different parts, or automobile bits, or and this you don't find in Europe as much at all. They're a bit more self-sustaining. Well, they have an older pattern. They have a lot of inertial forces from history. So yeah, so trying with the common market to get things moving. And obviously certain countries like Dutch specialize in the hot houses and so do the Spanish. And um, you have these sort of different uh, dynamics happening. But you have this huge inertial force and a big value for cultural landscapes as well, particularly in France and in Germany, like a pressure to maintain those cultural landscapes. So uh, I'm curious then, why, why did that belief system not pass over then into anyone pretty much in North America that would have been some of those earlier settlers that... Oh, I think it did. I think that that, that notion of, of having your own plot of land and being able to you know, do what you wanted on it. But I mean, in terms of the value of it, that there's a certain degree of... It's a bit precious. It's not something to be abused. Well, I think that comes... If you're on a very small island, and the island is full of people, there's really nowhere else to go. So like in England, you can ship people off to India, Australia, Canada, or the U.S., and then you don't have to worry about as many people. But if you have all those people on the island, they're not going anywhere. And even if you try to work them to death in factories, they're still going to be there. And so then you have this notion of a kind of sustainable system, much like the Earth is a kind of island floating in space. If we don't think of it globally, we can't think about the relationships between things. North America suffers from this notion that it's not an island at all. It's a kind of infinite frontier. And we talk about this frontier even extending into outer space. So now we can colonize Mars or we can take you know, minerals from somewhere else. We can grow things. So it's always this notion of infinite expansion. And the whole point, the whole insight of the ecology movement was that it's not an infinite expansion. It's actually contained yeah. by the sphericity yeah, of the globe. It's a finite resource. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in Europe, they realize that much more, much earlier. And there's only so far you can take the endless wars to acquire more fuel, more land, you know, the Ukraine equaling the prairies, you know, for Germany, what the U.S. had in the prairies. These kinds of notions are ultimately untenable. And I think now we're finally coming to a place with a real sense of the interconnectivity of the globe, underscored by something like this pandemic, where we realize it's completely a circular system. and trying to really come to terms with that means, yeah, you can't necessarily clear cut your forests without having huge impacts. You can't take all the fish out of the ocean. Yeah, I really you hope that, yeah. Just this keep is... throwing trash into the ocean. As a professor of architecture, from somebody who may be listening to this that 
would be thinking that we might be talking about what a building looks like or how buildings are put together. How can you put what you're studying in the context of, of architecture? How would you put it in your own words? Well, I got into this, this issue of landscape interpretation really through, through an interest in public spaces. I mean, I started out my architectural career as an architect designing houses and public buildings for several different architects in New York and San Francisco. And, um, and I, I wasn't very interested in houses early on. It was just too personal with the client. I much preferred sort of the big ideas. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, and, I can relate uh, to that. So I sort of specialized in public buildings and, when you, and public spaces. And when you work in this realm, you have to ask questions like, what do these buildings and spaces mean to people? How do people interpret them and make sense out of them? What kinds of things are they looking for? And I'm pretty sure the answer is not the latest architectural idea, notwithstanding the power of star architecture to have a certain media cachet. For most people, they look for buildings that resonate with them. And so I got really interested in how people used public spaces to help develop their identity. So one of the first projects was Actually, in New York City, when I was working there doing high-rise social housing, I got interested in the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade. We had a friend who was helping develop the puppets for that parade. And it was um, it started from West Beth. In, uh, it's an artist colony in the west side of Greenwich Village. And this parade went through the streets of Greenwich Village, and it was mostly highly oriented toward the gay male community. And uh, most parades in New York go up and down the avenues like up Fifth Avenue or down from like Macy's Parade and stuff. This one went cross town. So we're really interested, my partner, Sarah Bonmaison and I, were really interested in how, why this gay parade went cross town. It's kind of querying the normal direction for parades. And it started in West Beth Artist Colony and everyone's dressed up to the nines and, you know, prancing through the streets with these large puppets. Sounds fantastic. It was it wonderful. Really and of course we dressed up and experiences and ended up in, uh, Anyways, it's the one, Washington Square Park, super important park. It's got a wonderful arch by Stanford White in the middle. And they dragged up a skeleton there and sort of hung it, you know, the skeleton is sort of the specter of, of Halloween. And so we're really interested in how festivals helped make the link, popular festivals especially, between the use of public space and issues of meaning. So this is basically gay community reclaiming Manhattan to rewrite it in its own terms, basically layering meaning over, over the city. And it's the same way we then experienced in 1984 the, by the centennial of the Statue of Liberty, and that the whole city again was transformed for that. I mean, they practically had the U.S. Senate on one aircraft carrier destroyer in the harbor. The whole harbor was full of boats. There were walls of um, bleachers set up at the ends of all the of the island of Manhattan, and I happened to be on the Jersey side, looking at this sort of spectacle of all of Manhattan turned into kind of stage for Liberty, Lady Liberty, which is on you know the island, and um, this this sense of how a city could be completely transformed to talk about a particular moment really fascinated both of us. Yeah, and, and so, you can think of so many different uh, cities around the world right. of which that central festival or activity has 
transformed a significant part of the city, like running of the bulls, for example. That's right, or, in Pamplona. Yeah. And the just, Palio in Siena. Yeah, exactly. The Mardi Gras in uh, Rio, the uh, uh, the same kind of thing in Venice for the carnival. Um, many, many cities have these things. And so we got inter- interested in these festivals and did a lot of research in festivals around the world and also started designing for festivals in Vancouver. So we did... Um, architecture for the first gay games held in Canada in Vancouver in 1990 and then for a year of music with uh, an ad agency Young and Rubicam and then the city of Vancouver's bicentennial commemoration which was commemorating Vancouver's arrivals was commemorating a very colonial moment and the person who retained us was Gary Crystal from the Vancouver Folk Music Festival and he was given the brief by the city to develop this event commemorating this bicentennial and of course being a hardcore Marxist from, you know, many years and and community organizer, he says, I'm not going to commemorate this Vancouver's arrival. We're going to call it Arrivals and Encounters. And it's going to talk about successive waves of people arriving and what they encountered and what they met and who received them or didn't receive them. So that event became about about four different communities in Vancouver, the Asian communities, Chinese and Japanese that helped build the railroads and, and what they experienced, the Punjabi Sikh community. Italian and gay and lesbian in the in the commercial drive area, and then of course indigenous people, in particular the Musqueam band. And we worked with uh, local artists to construct four giant triumphal arches or monuments out of scaffolding and painted painted scrim canvas, thirty feet high in each of these parks. And there was like stages and music that the Folk Music Festival, you know, arranged in each of these parks. And they all had themes. These arches were based on older British and Canadian tradition of constructing welcoming arches when you had royal tours of Canada. So when the Duke and Duchess of Connaught came through Canada in around 1908 or something like that, all the local cities would put up commemorative arches, like the lumbermen would do one out of lumber and the Chinese would do sort of a Chinese one, each showing their sort of fealty to the crown. And we thought, you know, all these people who came never got welcomed. So maybe we should construct welcoming arches for them talking about their stories. So for the Punjabi community, we had a giant mural of the Komogata Maru, that ship that was isolated and not allowed to disembark when uh, British Canada changed their policy about allowing immigrants from East Asia who had served in British wars and fascinating stories. So we had many, many of these stories and they were like giant visual newspapers. So we talked to people from these different communities and say, what stories would you like to have told? And they said, you know, this city, like some man from the Chinatown area in Vancouver, sort of near the Lower East Side, says, you know, the city, my family's lived here several generations, but there's very little in the city that speaks to me. There's all these things that speak to the British heritage or the British tradition or new money but there's nothing that talks about our history. And I think that does contribute to things like creating arches or creating, let's say, the Sun Yat-sen Garden or creating memories or memorials or markers where people can see themselves in the city. And so here, even in Halifax, there's a huge push for heritage buildings, but it's always the colonial heritage that talks about, never indigenous. It's not inclusive to a broad range of Or to the first people. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually absolutely. completely exclusive. Yeah, exactly. And then to the new people, oh, that's too new. We can't include them. So it's a very particular moment that's being privileged rather than saying this is a constant process where we have to be able to feel like we belong and sure. see ourselves. So in the context of, of festivals, which is is important to you and you see as a kind of almost like a a birth of sorts to a meaning to a city or absolutely. to a place. 
it's counterintuitive in, you know, the more I've thought about it as, as you've been describing it, because it, you know, when you hear about festivals, you think about something that's quite temporary, right? right? Not something that is really Monument. monumental right. or permanent or, right. you know, the fact that a city can evolve itself around a festival. How would you describe a festival today, maybe, as something that could influence the, the foundation of, a, of the city moving forward? Oh, I think it happens constantly, and it's constantly being created. Grassroots festivals are constantly being set up, whether they're representing ethnic communities or different kinds of identity. One recent example here in Halifax is the emergence of Nocturne after the Nuit Blanche series. And that becomes part of the city's identity in a very positive way because it, it sort of represents a new generation. If you just had the old generation, we'd be having the... Um, You're doing a drum. Yeah, the tattoo. Oh, we'd the tattoo. We'd be having the tattoo forever. <laughs> that, I should have known what you were gesturing because to do a drum action, that would of yeah. course mean Yeah, like when tattoo. it came to yeah. tattoo and the tattoo yeah. is just so <laughs> 1930s. Yeah. It's so mid-20th yeah. century. Yeah, that's right. Whereas Nocturne is so late 20th yeah. century. So it's very, very different. I think it constantly being just maybe to someone else who is listening to this that doesn't know what Nocturne is. It is a arts festival that takes place over one evening throughout Dartmouth and Halifax, of which artists and uh, designers of or interested groups of any part would create a art installation. That eighty percent of it is outdoors, and so people take over the streets. They're walking down the streets. They're dancing there. They're projecting rolling waves on glass windows. They're doing it is a fantastic event. It yeah. really is. Yeah, that's, so that's a really good example. example. That's a really good so example. So we think about monuments, and we have new monuments like the wonderful Halifax Public Library. But I think architects often think if we build it and it lasts, it's more meaningful. And I think the monument is sort of like the crusty residue of culture. It's important, but the living part is pretty important too. Absolutely, yeah. And so I yeah. think that's festivals is like the counterpart of monument. I see them as two sides of the same process of trying to to make the place you're in meaningful and to be able to read the urban landscape around you as a cultural artifact in cities. And so in my book now, I'm looking at the natural landscape, trying to read it as a cultural artifact and seeing the current practices as well as the historical practices and the traces that we can see. So bringing that same kind of thinking you asked earlier, the cultural dimensions of the belt environment, looking at the cultural dimensions of the cultivated environment. Right. Yeah. yeah. You just, you blew my mind there. You just looped it back in. I get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you would describe yourself, I think, first as a, a professor of architecture. Uh -huh. What, what got you into teaching? Like why you're an extraordinarily intelligent person. And I think I can imagine living in a space of, of research and study makes some sense to me, but I, I'd love to hear from you why you're, what got you into teaching? And well, as you can see, I like to talk. <laughs> and so, uh, students are often in a position where they're curious about things. And I think most, most teachers are also curious about things. So I think they share, they share that desire to learn. And for me, I like not just learning new things, but I like um, making sense out of the world around me, like putting together disparate things and finding threads that connect what seems to be separate aspects of our life, our experience, and bringing them together so they make sense. And that's a really useful skill for a teacher because you can connect one part to another so things don't feel like an isolated skill or an isolated technique or practice, but you start to see the integrated dimensions of what we're doing here on Earth. Mm -hmm. 
And would you say that architecture specifically or the world of design offers a particular framework to that that is interesting to you? Yeah, I do. Very much so. It's sort of like, in some ways, it's the opposite of both art and science. And it probably shares that with engineering. I think both architecture and engineering, they have dimensions that have to be integrative and practical. So science has a way of going very deep into something by breaking it into little pieces and being able to understand the truth by going ever smaller and ever more precise. And then obviously in larger networks and they have to draw relationships between things. And there's this wonderful method, the scientific method, which allows you to hypothesize and then set up experiments and try to find truth through that mechanism. And art is more like having an obsession and you see the world in a particular way and you just do it again and again and again and again and again. And very few artists can constantly reinvent what their obsession is. They're a handful. Most have a particular sort of obsession and they can go very deep into it there and constantly sort of refine it and perfect it through that practice. But I think architects and engineers, they don't produce very much primary knowledge, like in terms of obviously there's some, but they always use the work from science and art and then integrate it and connect it and apply it and find relationships between things. Um, and that part, I think, and same thing with computer science in a way, it's about connecting and integrating. Yeah, I've, I've been really fascinated in having had a client who was a computer scientist, how his thinking process was remarkably creative. Yes. And in a way, very similar to the of the mental model that architects have. I think so. It's it's really quite fascinating. So and I have uh, five brothers and a sister, mm-hmm. and pretty much everyone is either an engineer or an architect. So yourself. I have one language person. But an archi- you're an architect. And my course, brother's an architect. And, and I have uh, three other. Uh, yeah, actually, four brother, uh, three brothers that are engineers, and a sister who's special ed bilingual. You know, in the school system. Right. But Christmas parties must have very technical conversations <laughs> around Turkey. It's a, it's, it's, that is almost the exact opposite of my family. We're all like completely, my, my sister is a, uh, an in-house counsel for a, an insurance company. Uh-huh. And, uh, I have two, one actor brother, one screenwriter oh, wow. brother, and, uh, a creative a, yeah, a sister who is a, uh, creative person and working in the world of textiles as well. So like ah, it's, it's a all creative. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. And uh, it certainly leads to, leads to some interesting complex conversations, I would say, but to come back to your description of the artists and maybe architects and artists being this obsessed individual that artists, is, I think more than architects. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. If I said architects, artists being more, Focus towards refining something. I might have mentioned this once already in another podcast, but I had a great conversation with Brian McKay Lyons once uh, when I was working for him, and he was describing his process as constantly trying to move further to the center, mm. and it's it's a constant refinement of mm. an idea or a form or or something uh, to that effect. And as much as I I deeply, deeply respect him and his work. It's one of the reasons why I was so drawn to come here because I really wanted to learn something from what was really captivating to me about his work. But looking back on it now, I really do 
much more identify and appreciate, um, I would say, where our office is now, which is trying to constantly increase the size of that circle, not to refine it towards going to the center, but to incorporate and to include other layers of our world. And I, I find that really, really interesting that something which maybe seems um, disconnected in a thought or a skill or a point of view that somebody could have in her office. If it's a, somebody who is, uh, I don't know, like a, a graphic designer may come in and be a part of a design project on a building and would have a significant influence on what the building is or what the space might be or, or something. And I, I find that if you're open to those new inputs, as the circle gets bigger, it just seems intuitively, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but like, it seems more in line with what you're talking about, how architects are, but I can't imagine moving towards a center is more inclusive to new thinking versus the other way. And in a world that's constantly changing, if you're not open to, you know, it's unfortunate Brian's not here to defend or to describe what his point of view is. And this is purely just my understanding in a conversation that we had many, many, many years ago. I, I just feel that our world needs to continually evolve the circle and increase it versus reducing it. I think that's a beautiful image that you've put put out there. One way, I guess, of thinking of any practice is about the notion of excellence. And in that artistic or scientific model, excellence is about focus and doing more and more of it to try to find, as you put it, the core. But I think there's a very important place in this world that's constantly changing to take a completely opposite approach, which you've already described as this expanding circle. And I think the areas of human endeavor that are growing very rapidly often are in these realms of expanding circles and often where they intersect. And this has to do with bringing in different disciplinary expertise and trying to get it to work together to have a more profound understanding. So I'll give you one example, and this is in the realm of sciences, but not only because it also affects law and, and engineering and a number of things around our knowledge of the oceans. So we can study different sub aspects of the oceans, but we have to look at all those layers of the system coming together to understand really the whole the oceans in their entirety, what's happening with them. And within any ecosystem, it's the same. And I think it's the same for actually social ecosystems and cities. And as we start to have models of knowledge that are more inclusive and more interested in this interdisciplinary approach, I think we're going to strengthen fields like architecture and engineering and even computer science. Each of those have their Achilles heel. That architecture, you know, focusing just on like design, beauty, and engineering just focusing on economics or functionality or computer science just focusing on, you know, faster speeds and (laughs) market share, Um, each time has their Achilles heel because their vulnerable spot of what they're not paying attention to and what Mm -hmm. is either not being done or they're losing in terms of their participation in that sphere of their activity. Yeah, like the, the, I I really, I really, really connect with what you said about the, the sort of the blind spot that exists if we are not continually expanding our understanding of what specifically architects or designers should be thinking or being a part of or working in collaboration with others. The role of an architect, as you mentioned a bit ago about it being more of an aesthetic kind of uh, a position, creates such an 
potentially insignificant role in what could be a future for the profession. And the blind spot that the profession has is not understanding that there could be a more significant role in the contribution to our built environment, or in your case, into larger landscapes and an understanding of how people are better when their understanding of both are are greater. So how can then we, outside of increasing our understanding and inclusivity of others and uh, a knowledge base and a body of knowledge, if we can always continue to increase that, we can hopefully capture and recognize more blind spots. What do you see as some of the more significant blind spots that we have as a profession today that we really should address or try to see differently? I I can address that in a second, but I think there's one thing that we should maybe talk about before that, which is directly related to what you're what you're saying. And this is um, how how our society organizes itself around making decisions about what design and engineering practices need to be done. Like if cities, in how they're organized and how they communicate, how they set up the framework for a project that they need to have done, if they can talk between the different units in terms of their own governance structure, then they can figure out how to phase work so that you rip things up once and you renew all the systems at the same time. But what usually happens is all those things happen separately and one directly undermines the next. So you're You put in accessible greenways and then you chop it all up with bollards that are for another purpose. And then you slice that up with plumbing that's for another purpose and nothing works together. But there are cities in Europe that are saying, well, let's integrate this thinking and let's roll it out as a sort of system. The architectural firm run by Ram Koolhaas, for example, OMA, started a branch of their office called AMO, which is just about helping institutions program the space they have better so that maybe they don't need to build at all. And I think that's a really good lesson of sort of prior to design. So it's really about the pre-designed scenario of who's asking for it. Like if the dysfunctional family wants a house, it's going to be a silk purse out of a sow's ear because they haven't come to terms with what they want. And the architects, there's no way you can trick that up and make it nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's you basically can't build a, mess a house from the to beginning. make a family work. Yeah, no, it has to start elsewhere. And it's the same thing with engineering. You can break things into small little pieces, and you might solve a problem around, let's say, how to span this bridge economically. You know, but is it in the right place, or are people still going right. to want to jump off of it? So that's the, that's in terms of the I, general. I, I completely challenge. agree with that. Yeah. I, then I, I that. In terms of the specific, you know, what might architecture do, I think, to keep its circle widening, I think in terms of the educational system, we can do an awful lot. First, by not, not seeing beautiful formal development or formal design as the primary purpose of an architectural education, but maybe a synthetic way of observing, analyzing, bringing together, drawing conclusions, a more inclusive approach to who's participating in the discussion, Um, an ability, architects have a tremendous ability to visualize, um, which adds a whole new dimension to narrative logic. And I think that can be harnessed very well in these sort of synthetic understandings where people can get so much from the visual imagery as well as the words. So I think we have quite a bit to offer. And I think um, architects tend to know a little bit about a lot of things mm-hmm. and have the ability to bring these together in complex ways. And I think that's the real important skill yeah. we could be developing that could work for finances, 
or trying to get the most value out of the many factors that come into a project. Thanks for listening to the first of two parts in this conversation we have with Christine. Second part will be dropped in about a week from now. We continue to expand the conversation into a whole variety of other interesting topics. Hope you like the second one as much as this one. Thanks for listening to the Design Makes Everything Better podcast by Breakhouse, a Canadian strategic design firm. This was episode six, part one with Christine Macy. A full transcript and show notes can be found at breakhouse.ca slash podcast slash 6.1. If you like the show, help us out. Subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast app and share us with your friends. Have feedback or ideas for the show? Drop us a line at podcast at breakhouse.ca.